Support for the Everyday People edition of Radioactive comes from Mark Miller Subaru. The following program was pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders. I'm community co-host Sue Robbins. It's Monday night and Monday nights are Everyday People nights where we shine the light on our LGBTQI plus community and all its intersectionality. Joining me in another virtual edition of our show, executive producer, Laura Jones. Hi, Sue. I want to get this out and in the open. We have had a wonderful time with you for how long now? It's over two years now. Over two years that you've been doing the Everyday People edition of the show and really elevating the voices of our LGBTQIA community. And it's time for you to pass the baton. And uh, your last show will be April 19th. I wanted people to know so they could enjoy the next couple of weeks with you. And uh, we may be looking for someone that no one can replace you, Sue. You are a unique individual and have really upped radioactive. (laughs) But um, I wanted people to know that transparently moving forward. And we'll see what comes uh, in the next evolution of Radioactive on Monday nights. But you have truly brought something unique the last two years to KRCL's Radioactive. Thank you. It's been an amazing experience. And I love the KRCL family. I appreciate all the work that the two of us have been able to do together. But above all, lifting voices was always the goal. Bring in education about voices that didn't always get heard. And that I hope whoever comes in helps take that baton and keep it going because well, that's I'll be looking what we for need. suggestions from you. I'm sure you know quite a few people, so uh, we'll be talking about that. But uh, what yes, voices we are we raising tonight? So tonight on another Everyday People edition of this show, we're going to talk with YWCA Utah about practicing consent online and in real life. And we have Jess Burnham and Gabe Archuleta with us to have a long discussion on that. Plus, Black Benatar is here with us on the Black Magic Cabaret. They had their virtual world premiere in conjunction with the University of Utah's Pride Week last week. We'll get a recap from artist Beatrice Thomas, a.k.a. Black Benatar, who hopes to take the show on the road in 2022. And we're going to have to bring you back in somewhere else again next year. And let's keep doing this annually. First, let's go to rallies and resources. So, Laura, if you could. Yes, at krcl.org, click the Community Affairs tab, and you'll find all of the things we're talking about. We also put them in the show post on the day that we mentioned them. So let's get a glance at some stuff that's happening. As we speak, actually, going on now, the move-through, a digital recreation of the original hip-hop opera, We Shall Not Be Moved, followed by an exclusive Q&A session with members of the original cast and creative team, another great production through the University of Utah. Tomorrow, community and identity-based education info session at 5 p.m. online with the McCluskey Center for Violence Prevention. Specifically, they seek to recruit graduates, Sue, who identify as students of color, queer and or trans, and or people with disabilities to build identity-specific educational programming for undergraduate students. On Wednesday, Utah Humanities, Weber State's Lindquist College of Arts and Humanities, and Westminster College's School of Arts and Sciences invite communities throughout Utah to join them for a special virtual screening of A Reckoning in Boston. And they'll have a live Q&A with the filmmaker and a subject of the film, 
It follows students in a Clemente course in the humanities, a free interdisciplinary humanities course offered to adults of, quote, modest means who dare to dream. And while it takes place in Boston, it is relevant to all audiences, especially those in Utah, where the venture course operates as part of a national network of Clemente courses. And joining us to talk about it, we have two folks joining us now, Sue. We've got Josh Wenergren, Director of Utah Humanities Center for Educational Access. Hi, Josh. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. You oversee the Venture Course and the Clemente Course. And you also uh, arranged to have joined with us someone who's gone through this course, Brenda Nicholson. Hi, Brenda. Hi. Thanks for having me. So I I really want to know a little bit about this film, but then how you two relate to it, because your personal experiences come into play. So, Josh, explain this film that people can screen with you on Wednesday and how they can sign up for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you covered a good amount um, in the intro, but yeah, so Utah Humanities, we're a statewide nonprofit, and we partnered with Weber State and Westminster to screen this film, and it's a special sneak peek. Um, The film will be aired on PBS later this year, so it's a chance to kind of get in a little bit early and check it out. Um, It's a documentary, it's moving, um, and it follows two graduates from uh, the Adult Clemente course, which we'll talk more about in a second, kind of what that is. Um, But it follows these students um, after the course to kind of see how their engagement with the humanities um, reframed their lives and um, sparked a uh, fierce sense of voice and agency with these students. Um, And so the film follows them. And it's a very unique uh, film because the director um, realized that he, being from a fairly privileged white perspective, wasn't fully equipped to tell this story and to shape this story. And so he immediately enlisted the uh, subjects of the film, Coffee Dixon and Carl Chandler, um, to help uh, tell this story in the, the proper way. And so I think it, it has, it's, it's powerful. It's exciting. Um, yeah. So Wednesday, 530, um, you can find it by going to utahhumanities.org and clicking on our events page. And I bet, Laura, that you also have a link on the Radioactive page um, to sign up. And the one other thing I should mention before um, you tell me what I missed, because I bet I missed something, but that's that uh, the Q&A afterwards will have, it will feature the filmmaker, James Rutenbeck, as well as uh, Coffee Dixon, and it will be facilitated by Eileen Chanza-Torres from Westminster College and Dodge Hovermull, uh, who's an undergraduate at Westminster College, and both Eileen and Dodge uh, teach in the youth version of this course, so they have experience with this kind of work. Well, someone else who has experience with this course is our other guest, Brenda Nicholson, Sue, who was raised in an extreme conservative religious cult for 40 years, the FLDS community. But you completed the venture program in 2015, and you say it was a life-changing experience that helped you find your voice. Tell us about that, why this, why that program was so powerful for you. So um, I was, I had very little education as far as normal education before that. And in the FLDS, women are basically seen as property. I'd always dreamed of going to college, but we weren't allowed to. There were a few who did mostly to go into the medical field, um, but I wasn't one of the people that was told that I could do that. And going to the venture course, um, it was the first time I was in a space where I felt I was safe and that I had a voice. And part of it was that you needed to participate if you wanted the college credit. And I wanted that more than anything. So it caused me to step out of my comfort zone 
And, you know, the first time I answered a question and didn't get ridiculed or laughed at, it was just the most incredible experience. I finally, for the first time, I felt like my voice mattered and that I had value as a person, not just as, you know, a wife or a mother or someone who could have children. And it absolutely changed my life. I, I feel like I was raised in this little tiny box and going to the venture course broke that box wide open. And all of a sudden I could see that the world was not what I was taught it was, that it was this amazing place full of possibilities. And as Josh, is, is this the screening to facilitate this kind of discovery for other folks in Utah? Yeah, I would say that the screening is to shed light on uh, the power of the humanities. Um, and in, in the context of this film, it's the humanities in a, in a fairly academic college setting. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that what the screening does is it, um, it reminds people of the power of taking the time to engage with the humanities disciplines. Um, and that leads to an ability to discover your own ideas and flesh out your own ideas and kind of, you know, we, we talk about in the writing courses, how you end up writing yourself to an idea. Um, and so it, these courses provide space for folks to do that. And it also provides um, space, as Brenda talked about, to um, be seen and to see others, to, um, you know, express yourself, but also to start to hear other perspectives and start to hear um, how other people relate to the world. And there's a real power in um, engaging in that kind of uh, Socratic dialogue. And Brenda, you've become an advocate for others. Tell us about that work. I spend a lot of time doing research on trauma and how to recover from that. And I have done a lot of work trying to educate people on what I see as the inherent harms of patriarchal polygamy. And, you know, it, it wasn't until after I got through the venture course that I felt like I could really, that, that I could do that. They, it gave me the courage to do that. And a lot of that came from, you know, that was the most diverse group of people I had ever known in my life. And it was so accepting. And there were, even though we all had very different backgrounds, that was where I first realized that we all as, as humans have this, this shared experience and we all experience the same emotions. And it made it easier to talk about what we experienced because I knew that other people could understand it because of what they'd been through, even though it was a different, you know, a different experience, it was the same feelings involved. Well, Brenda, thank you so much for sharing just a little glimpse into your world and Josh as well, what this course can do. And I'm guessing you can give us that website again where folks can learn more about the screening, but also how they can take this course because it doesn't cost you anything as I am, uh, as I recall. Yeah. So first on the screening uh, and for the information on the course, go to utahhumanities.org. Um, and you know, currently, I'm sorry to say that the venture course is in a, a stage of restructuring. Um, so one of the kind of motivations, I think, to bring this film is to reinvigor some of that um, uh, 
you know, the, the sense of urgency that we need this course. Um, and, and we're well underway as far as like working to get it back. Um, but there is information and I, I'm encouraging folks to email me if they're interested because we're hoping to have something to offer soon. And in the meantime, I should also mention that Utah Humanities has um, a wide variety of programs and humanities experiences to engage with. So um, while the venture course is a powerful way to do that, there's other ways as well. And we want folks to make sure that they're, they see that. So yeah, utahumanities.org. And what's your email briefly? Yes, my email is Wenergren. It's uh, W-E-N-N-E-R-G-R-E-N at utahumanities.org. We'll put all of those notes in the show notes tonight. Josh Wenergren, Brendan Nicholson, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Just a couple more items, Sue, in rallies and resources before we get to Black Benatar. Thursday, more from the Move On Project online, how we got here. It's a panel discussion with three of the superstars of We Shall Not Be Moved, composer Daniel Bernard Romain, librettist and spoken word artist Mark Barmuthi-Joseph, and director-choreographer icon Bill T. Jones. Also on Thursday, another great conversation happening through the university's Tanner Humanities Center. Director Erica George will be talking with Wendy Green in a virtual conversation about free the hair, black beauty, equity, art, and expression. Saturday is the last day for Black Refractions at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts. We have one more reflection on the exhibit, and I'm going to plug that in right here. This is Ashley Farmer, an educator at the UMFA, here to share about Black Refractions, highlights from the Studio Museum in Harlem on exhibition at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts through April 10th. In this exhibition, you'll find How I Got Over, a painting by Henry Taylor that depicts high jumper Alice Coachman, the first Black woman to win an Olympic gold medal. When we asked community leader James Jackson III to select an artwork from the exhibition that really resonated with him, he chose this painting. This is his response. Hi, my name is James Jackson III, founder of the Utah Black Chamber in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hurdle after hurdle, obstacle after obstacle, barrier after barrier. Yet we as a people, we got over. That's what this picture says to me. In 1951, Mahalia Jackson released the song, How I Got Over. Still today, this is one of the staple old gospel songs sung in black churches across the country. I grew up hearing this song. There are some old gospel hymns that I dread hearing in church, but when I hear this song, I find myself singing along and getting into the spirit. Of course, it's always an older person leading the song, but it makes sense given not just how old the song is, but what it represents. The black community has crossed so many hurdles since the song's release. The majority of African-Americans were living in a segregated world, not having access to the same housing, education, health care and resources as white people. And here we are, 70 years later, not necessarily living in a segregated world, but still fighting that same fight for equity. But we're making progress. You know, my soul looks back in wonders how I got over. I think about all the hurdles we have crossed to get to where we are now. The Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, Brown versus the Board of Education, just to name a few that we got over during this race to equity. While we still have a long way to go, we have so much to be thankful for. And I thank him for how he brought me. Oh, yes. And I want to thank God for how he taught me. Oh, yes.
Ooh, thank my God for how he kept me. Oh, yes. I'm going to thank him because he never left me. Oh, yes. The path it took to where I am now took many hurdles. And I'm sure many of you can relate. We often wonder, how many more hurdles do we have to cross before we get to the finish line? Sometimes we ask ourselves, is it worth it? After a while, the hurdles become more and more challenging as our endurance begins to fade away. And we have to look for that inner strength to keep us moving. It's the inner strength that Mahalia Jackson is singing about. Whether it's God, the universe, or whoever you have as your higher calling. It takes that inner strength to make our purpose more clear and inspires us to keep running. We know what the finish line looks like, but we still haven't made it far enough for it to come into view. But we continue to run. We continue to jump over the hurdles that lie in front of us. And when we reach that end, our soul will look back and wonder how we got over. That's James Jackson III reflecting on How I Got Over a painting by artist Henry Taylor. The artwork is just one of a hundred works by artists of African descent included in Black Refractions, highlights from the Studio Museum in Harlem on view through April 10th at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts. Advanced tickets are required as capacity is limited for everyone's safety. For details and tickets, check tonight's show notes or visit umfa.utah.edu. If you're not quite ready to visit the museum in person, the website offers lots of ways to engage digitally. A highlights tour, virtual presentations with curators and scholars, and a digital toolkit to guide K-12 or university classroom learning. You'll also find a calendar of exhibition-related events, most of which are also virtual. Thank you, Ashley. Do check the show notes for a link to Black Refractions. Just a handful of days left to see it here in Utah. And now another special guest that we have really been excited about this one, Sue. Last week, as you said, Black Benatar, Black Magic Cabaret made a virtual stop during the Youth Pride Week in partnership with the College of Social Work. It was a worldwide premiere of a joyous exploration of racial justice and allyship full of circus, magic, dancing, and puppets. What we're going to do is decenter whiteness, right? Right here, we're going to be in this intersectional space, and we are going to decenter whiteness. That's white ally. It's why I. It's my intern. White came to me like with this. Uh -huh. White ally. Got it. Okay. Right. White ally. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, jacket. Thank you. Okay. Reparations interns. What are you gonna do? <laughs> and joining us now is Black Benatar, also known as the artist Beatrice Thomas Sue. Welcome, Beatrice. Hey. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me here. I am just so sorry we weren't able to get you in before the world premiere, but there's so much to talk about what comes next. But first, I got, got to have you explain how cool this is <laughs> and how long you've been working toward it. I, I would say, um, how cool is it? What is really incredible is that I, I assembled a really incredible team of um queer and BIPOC folks who are just excellent at what they do and have like the most beautiful values that are in aligned with the show and and myself. And so this was a huge um, ensemble work. I, I am just the nuts person that was like, 
I think I should just, we should make a cabaret and it should have puppets and, and drag and, and dance. And we'll, you know, that was like, that was the affliction that um, started it all. But it's really, uh, we have like two incredible puppeteers who typically work in folk puppeting uh, and they were able to take those skills and bring them and apply them to this sort of new content um, and format. We had uh, an incredible uh, costumer. Uh, so the puppeteers, Orin Amarillo and Winnie Chin, and then our costumer, Kipper Snacks, is like, you know, the best kept secret in the drag world in San Francisco in terms of their uh, costuming and quality. We were so lucky to be able to give them their first opportunity to be um, the costume mixtress, as we like to say. And uh, Kipper is a trans Filipino woman who with excellent skills. And so just so excited to be able to say, no, this is your vision. This is, we want you to apply your vision to this thing. So I got a lot of people who made this, made this beautiful mess. <laughs> um, but I think the, we started working on it maybe four or five years ago. And if I only did it in workshop format, you know, if someone would say, we have $500 to give you to do it. And I'd say, great, I'm going to spend it and we're going to try to workshop it on its feet. And then it was um, Brooke Horsch with the University of Utah that was sort of like, I want to know more. I want to hear more. And would you be interested in, you know, sort of developing it at Utah? And, you know, queer BIPOC work doesn't often have folks who are just like, hey, would you like to come and develop your work in our giant theater with with the resources that we have available? And um, and so we we took the opportunity. I really jumped. I leapt before I really understood what what that all meant. But um, we were able to secure a really big grant. We did the most fundraising we've ever done. And we were able to bring that beautiful queer crew of uh, creatives to to Utah. And it was joyous and so, hell at the same time. <laughs> that sounds like a lot. And it fills your heart probably to be able to take this all the way through. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, you're trying to move your audience from allies to active accomplices. What does that look like? I think that the work is trying to use comedy, you know, gags, wonder and delight to kind of trick people into those next steps where it's like, Sometimes I think that the most important thing an ally can do is to look inside of themselves and, and connect, you know, their values to the outcomes of, of equity and the outcomes of, of, of this world, this, this diversity, equity and inclusion that everyone's talking about. But it's really a vision for a world where everyone can get their needs met. And I think that the show is about taking it from that one step of performative allyship, which is like, I'm good with this. I'm good with this. You see, I'm a very good person. I've got a couple of friends that show a spread, but to go in deeper to say, what, what are, where are the layers that I can actually move beyond just a sort of a performance of, of a hand across and really put that, put, put some substance behind it to, to understand that we have to take action. So I, I hope that what I'm doing is selling a vision um, that is about diversity and, and the, 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 the greatness that I see when 
all our communities can come together in, in the desire to, to get everyone's needs met. And I want to sell that vision. Um, and I think that's an invitation, at least. So what happens with the virtual performance from last Friday? You're going to make it available online. And then I know there's a GoFundMe page up so you can take this show on the road. So, yeah, you know, it's funny. It was like, oh, we got the biggest grant of our lives. Oh, now we're in a pandemic. Like, oh, it's, you know, we're theater and we're on stage or we're in queer nightlife. So the the audience is huge, right? The energy that the audience gives you is huge. But we're just like, no big deal. We'll 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 make it theater, but then we'll kind of treat it like a film and then we'll kind of edit it live, you know, in three days and you know, go. We learned so much um about what you lose when you're not in in the space with with people. So it, while like we're, we plan to have it available on the site, uh, barring, I believe this is, I may not be speaking quickly, but we're, we're talking about having it available on the site through uh, the end of April so that folks who uh, bought tickets can see it again. Those who experience some of the technical difficulties can catch those uh, first half of the show uh, and also to have other tickets available for folks who want to see it. So that's our goal is middle of the week. There should, it should be back up. When you say the site, which site is that? Oh, I believe that is going to be Utah Presents. Yes. Which the Kingsbury Hall, (laughs) which I would highlight, I just have to highlight it because I'm a nerd in this way, is that Kingsbury Hall has a queer legacy. And that is Keen Curtis, who is one of the stage actors who, you know, made La Caja Fall, you know, a popular stage show. And we really feel like um, we love building on uh, queer legacies in these historic spaces. You know, this building is is decades old and has like this rich history and we're not new to it, right? We've been there, we've always been there. And so we're building on a legacy and I love, I just love that. So I always want to tell people about Keen Curtis and that like, this isn't new. This is actually a history that is in place. We have been here. So well, that. the next step is to really take this on the road as we start to come yeah. out of COVID in Utah, hopefully across the country, hopefully globally. I have global dreams for you, Beatrice. I love those global dreams. <laughs> and I, I really want Europe. I want Europe, I want the middle of the country, and I want the South. Those are the areas that I am like most focused on. I am a coastal, like I hate to say it, I'm a coastal elite. Like I just was raised on, I went was on the East Coast, and then I went to the West Coast. And I, I see those things in myself. Like if we're talking about bias, I see where my biases um, land because of that sort of coastal elitism. And what I want more than anything is to create community. And that means like stepping outside of where there is so much access, right? Where there's, I want to go and I want to, we, we bring in local artists from each place that we tour. That is the design. So we had three local Utah artists um, uh, we put out through a call. And we're gonna do that in every city that we tour because we really wanna build community. We believe that queer arts has medicine for the world, but it doesn't have a destination. Like there's no there there. There's not a queer arts network. So we're trying to 
lay that foundation of building these connections as we move through the middle of the country and the south. Now, I know Utah is not the middle of the country, but it's surrounded by land. And so as a <laughs> This is this is where like I I have to be honest right I don't I I am I have my own biases and so the only way to get at that is to get out into community get out into different places and so uh, we're looking at Iowa we're looking at uh, New Orleans you know wherever anyone will have us. <laughs> well, Beatrice, how can folks? find Black Benatar's Black Magic Cabaret and help you get on the road for 2022? So yes, get on the road and also get involved. If you have artists or you have, you know, folks that you want to, um, please go to uh, www.blackmagiccabaret and send us a message there. Um, you can also find us on face Facebook, Black Magic Cabaret. Um, and I mean, I'm sure even if you emailed Utah Presents, they would be able to connect you. But we have a GoFundMe, of course. Um, and it's been, we, this project has been community filled. I cannot tell you the number of disasters that we have had to um, move through as a team in order to bring it to you. So the GoFundMe is available for anybody who wants to contribute and be a part of like really make like strong queer content that is gonna tour the country and hopefully the world and leave in its wake artists that are con like queer artists and BIPOC artists that are connected and and feeling more empowered. Yes, yeah, so drag's gonna save the world here, isn't it, Petrus? Believe it. I believe <laughs> it. it. I believe it can. I believe drag has a history that touches on. Um, all aspects of queer life, trans lives, like we have to really, I honor our narratives. I honor the ways in which our community has had to develop, blossom and grow. And I think drag is a really, it holds a lot of that legacy. And I don't want those legacies to be severed from each other. I want us, our, our diaspora to grow. You it know? started at Stonewall, right? It, that's right. Yes. <laughs> You know, I mean, it started in 18, uh, 1858 when William Dorsey Swan was born a, a slave and then was later freed and like was the first drag queen, was the first person to in, in like 1904 to refer to themselves as the queen of drag. This is a black ex-slave um, who was the first arrest, first person arrested for female impersonation. They wrote the rule for this person and it's it's really it's really profound we are so we don't see our legacies but we have been here and we will continue to be here and we have such beauty to share with the world and i want i want to share it i really i want us to be in beloved community with all people okay i'm stepping off the sofa <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just speechless Love because it. it was so great, Beatrice. Thank you so much for giving us a recap. And and anytime you're in town, you are welcome here. Thank you so much. You can't see me kissing. I'm just giving kisses, but... It's radio and I love, I just love seeing your faces. I love being in community and any way that we can connect our efforts. I am down, brown and down, always ready. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Beatrice. Thank you so much. 
Please take care. Take care. Whew, we're just going to end the show there. Ooh, ho, ho, ho. Just about. When we come back, though, we have an Everyday People panel coming up, Sue. Yes. So YWCA's Jess Burnham and Gabe Archuleta, and we're going to talk about Sexual Assault Awareness Month and some of its issues here on an Everyday People edition of KRCL Radioactive. Homegrown and heartfelt radio means Monday night blues and women who rock. It's hip-hop beats to ring in the weekend and a meditative soundtrack to ease into the week. KRCL DJs come at you with a heartfelt playlist handpicked to inspire and entertain. Support homegrown and heartfelt radio with your gift at krcl.org. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Love Promise Community Commitment, a partnership with nonprofit organizations that aims to make the world a better place. More information about the Love Promise Partnership and Subaru products at markmillersubaru.com. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Sue Robbins. Coming up after our show, it's Democracy Now! at 7, followed by Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm at 8 and Michelle's Night Train at 10.30. And you can always start a brand new day with John Florence weekdays at 6. So now let's go to our panel. Every April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and that's a nationwide effort to raise awareness of sexual assault and opportunity to share sexual assault prevention strategies. So joining me today from the YWCA is a panel of two amazing individuals, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Uh, first, Gabe, if you could tell us a little bit about Gabe Archuleta and the things that you do for our community. Hi, Sue and Laura. Thank you so much for having us on. Um, my name is Gabe Archuleta. I am the YWCA Utah Public Policy Analyst. I worked in the domestic violence field for uh, over 16 years, and I hold a joint law and master of public policy degree from the University of Utah. Uh, previous to joining the YWCA, I represented hundreds of survivors of violent crimes. Um, most of them were immigrants, and most of them were survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Thank you. Thank you, Gabe. And Jess Burnham, if you could tell us who Jess Burnham is and your involvement in the YWCA, and you've got quite a past too, if you'd like to share that with us, your experience that you bring into this, uh, into this effort. Sue and Laura for having us. Uh, we are so excited to be here to talk about uh, you know, the history of, of Sexual Assault Awareness Month and how it specifically impacts minoritized uh, communities. Uh, so my name's uh, Jess Burnham and I go by they, them pronouns. She, her is also fine. I earned my master's degree at Rutgers University this past year, just before COVID hit, <laughs> which was um, lucky in a sense. Uh, my, my degree is in women, gender, and sexuality studies. But simultaneous to uh, my master's program and, and research, um, I was also working as a research assistant at the uh, Center for Women in, Center on Violence Against Women and Children at Rutgers University. So my work kind of exists at the nexus of um, gender identity, sexual orientation, um, and also racialization when it comes to um, violence prevention work and really creating an expansive 
notion of what violence prevention means, both in terms of you know sexual assault and, and domestic violence, but thinking about um, you know the the interpersonal interactions of, of microaggressions and thinking about systems of violence and how that how those exacerbate you know uh, interpersonal harms as well. So uh, yeah, that's kind of my background, and then. As the YWCA Utah Prevention Program Manager, I really focus on bringing uh, healthy relationships education to youth in our community. I also offer education on taking action to prevent violence, harm, and oppression in our community. And our Sexual Assault Awareness Month theme really is preventing um, and taking action against online hate, harassment, and abuse, which is such a necessary conversation and all the more poignant, uh, you know, given our current COVID climate. So Jess, if I could ask you first, what do you feel like are the important aspects of Sexual Assault Awareness Month that need to always be hit upon each year by organizations, by individuals, by those of us who are just raising voices? Yeah, thank you for that question, Sue. Uh, I think that one of the most important points to hit on, and I think YWCA Utah is so well positioned to lead a lot of this work um, in community with, with uh, you know, our, our partners and, um, and with KRCL, <laughs> raising awareness, um, but I think is really highlighting the the nuance in the, the experiences in the aftermath of sexual violence and also how a person's social identity places them in you know, more or less proximity to uh, sexual assault and other forms of, of violence and harm. Um, and all too often, you know, these conversations uh, are kind of they remain identity neutral. They remain um, kind of focused on, on you know, dominant identity folks who um, who may be you know white, uh, cisgender, heterosexual, um, and the the presumption is always that it you know is a, a cisgender heterosexual man uh, perpetrating violence toward a cisgender heterosexual white woman. And, um, you know, those experiences are, are, are valid and, and um, you know, we need to work to counter all violence. But sometimes, you know, when that, when that narrative overtakes everything else, there's this erasure of, of the, um, you know, often disproportionate levels of violence that affect uh, minoritized folks. So I think, you know, centering those experiences um, is really key. And also, um, I'm very much a proponent of like a strengths-based approach. Uh, so I think part, part of what goes hand in hand with that is, you know, how do we uh, model and talk about, um, you know, I think what Beatrice got out of it, you know, the, the experiences of, of joy and um, the experiences of you know, communication and and uplift um, and and affirmation of identity that take place in in relationships between queer, trans, and gender nonconforming folks and their partners. 
Um, so I think that is another kind of flip side of the conversation that needs to happen. Yes, thank you. And so Gabe, when we look at this, we say marginalized communities are highly impacted from the cutie BIPOC community. There can be very, um, very specific types of manners in which the impact is on them. So could you speak to that a little, please? Yeah, definitely. And, and this is where it really gets complex, where there's the intersectionality, you know, with so many trans and um, people of color, especially Black people facing incarceration and then facing so much sexual assault while incarceration, there can be a real reluctance to report crimes. And I think that's where we see a difference from the resources that are available to people are resources that tend to be advertised and, and feel more accessible to white cisgendered survivors of crime. And I think that's a place where all organizations, ours included, we really need to look and see how welcoming we are to those, um, all of the marginalized groups that are affected by the sexual violence. You know, it's really telling if you're not seeing a lot of survivors um, who are people of color, who are immigrants or who are cutie BIPOC. Um, and, and we need to make sure that these resources are welcoming and they're available to everybody. Now, do we see this uh, when we look at institutions that are supposed to be there to protect or support people, maybe in law enforcement or in the medical field, do we see institutional issues that contribute to this greater for our more marginalized communities like the cutie BIPOC community? Absolutely. And so much of sexual assault intersects with intimate partner violence. And that's been the bulk of my um, area of work for the last several years. And I think that we are getting better, but we're not all the way there yet. So Jess, you'd like to add more to that, please? Yeah, yeah, I think that um, is such an important uh, point that you raised, Sue. Um, and one of my, um, there's a few really, really incredible resources out there that, um, you know, provide yearly reports and um, just really collect data on some of these issues. And one of those is the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs. Um, and they provide a, a really um, significant statistic in their 2017 report on um, intimate partner violence and hate crimes towards LGBTQIA plus and HIV affected folks. Um, and they, they tell us that, um, that basically another contributing factor um, of, you know, LGBTQIA plus folks being, and you know, QT BIPOC folks, of course, um, being perhaps um, like necessitating staying in, in unhealthy relationships sometimes, like one of the contributing factors to that is the lack of culture, culturally competent services. Uh, so according to their, their 2017 report, 43% of LGBTQIA plus uh, survivors of intimate partner violence who sought shelter were denied and nearly one third or 32% were turned away because of their gender identity. 
and then um, another statistic along with that is that trans women survivors uh, were nearly two and a half times more likely to experience violence in a shelter compared to cisgender women. Uh, so there's, you know, these various levels of, of violence, like there's intimate partner violence, but there, there is institutional violence, you know, that's built in um, that we really need to, um, you know, Beatrice, I think, was getting at the need for us to analyze implicit bias. And I think as institutions, we have to analyze, you know, implicit bias in those practices, like at the institutional level. And um, one resource that um, YWCA Utah is planning to use to help, um, you know, improve our practices organization-wide is the FORGE. Um, FORGE is a really amazing resource for um, trans folks generally and trans survivors of violence. And they have an organizational assessment to uh, make sure that your organization is as ready as possible to serve trans and non-binary uh, survivors of violence. Okay, thank you. So Gabe, this year we've we had a very active general session like we always do in Utah. What bills came out of that that you think were positive? And what are those that you wish had gone through that hadn't? Yeah, so there was a big funding win for sexual assault um, prevention and education, which typically does not get funded very well. We, um, as a collaborative group, had requested $2.2 million with, um, this was a joint effort with 19 organizations across the state of Utah, and ended up getting $3.6 million. So this was supposed to be, we wanted it to be ongoing funding, which is always a big fight. It ended up just being one-time funding, but this highlights some of the issues that we have with it. So this is amazing. We're getting a lot more money, but now programs are going to be building their services. And in a year, we don't know if they're going to continue. And I think that really impacts people's ability to be able to access service services. Um, you know, we still have so much more work to do surrounding just the conversation around sexual assault. I really saw that there's been a lot of improvement with how people talk about and understand domestic violence, but that's not the same for sexual assault. So there were a lot of really key sexual assault bills that didn't pass. And one is just so benign. It was Representative Stoddard's House Joint Resolution 2 to discuss the ongoing impacts of child sexual abuse. I mean, come on, let's just talk about it. Let's acknowledge that it happens. It failed. Um, there were two consent amendment bills. Representative Romero's HB 78, um, I think, was one of the most, um, it was one of the hardest committee hearings, the House Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice committee hearing where it died um, to sit through just because of the lack of understanding. It wasn't even, I mean, we didn't even get into the greater issues with sexual assault. It was just a base conversation. Let's, let's penalize um, uh, sexual assault without consent. And the conversation was surrounded ar around people concerned that their wives would be able to turn them in that um, that young, innocent, naive males would be wrongly accused. And then it just, it failed. They motioned to um, adjourn and, and that's where it ended. And then there was also Representative Carol Spackman Moss's health amendments bill to teach consent in high schools. And again, I mean, it was just met with so much resistance. People 
the legislature is not even wanting to talk about consent. So there were there were a handful of others, but those were um, some key key pieces of yeah, those. Those sound like the gross mischaracterizations that we hear over and over, and we should be well past educationally. Exactly. So you're listening to Everyday People on KRCL Radioactive. I'm your community co-host, Sue Robbins, and we're talking about Sexual Assault Awareness Month with YWCA, and my guests are Gabe Archuleta and Jess Burnham. And Jess, I'd like to go ahead and discuss a little what kind of programs are out there that are there for the survivors. What can we do for them? Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Sue. I think resource provision is like a huge um, support to survivors in the aftermath of sexual assault and also um, in the aftermath of forms of online hate, harassment, and, and abuse, including um, sexual harassment and abuse. Um, a few of the resources uh, that I would recommend more generally, um, one, of course, is the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Um, and this provides information, confidential support, and referrals. Uh, and the number for that is 1-800-656-HOPE. Um, and then, and I believe that hotline also can connect folks to their, their local resources. Of course, there's, um, YWCA Utah, uh, that provides, um, information, information and, and resources to folks, um, experiencing domestic violence. Um, we also at our family justice center, uh, can actually conduct sexual assault examinations on-site. Um, so some great resources in the community. There's also Rape Recovery Center, of course. Um, Love is Respect is another resource that I think is really important for young people to be able to access. It's 24-7 uh, information, support, and advocacy on romantic relationships, um, both healthy and, and unhealthy, um, for youth ages 13 to 16. Uh, that can be accessed um, via text by texting love is to 22522 or by calling 866-331-9474. Those are some of the, the prominent uh, national resources. Great. Well, thank you. So we have um, the, pardon me, editing beat for Laura. Uh, this year's theme for Sexual Assault Awareness Month is building safe online spaces. So what does that look like? I mean, we want to take it so that there's positive, healthy relationships online and there's a whole education around this. So how does it look to have online safe spaces? Jess. Thanks for the, the question, Sue. Uh, I think, as I mentioned, it's so incredibly important to um, really understand how these dialogues and dynamics uh, very much transfer into online spaces. Um, and I think, so for us, um, you know, of course, safe spaces, um, you know, that's kind of the theme of the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, um, which is the national organization that started um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month 20 years ago. Uh, for us, you know, that's safe spaces are something to work towards. Um, we're using the language of 
uh, respectful and affirming or respectful and identity affirming uh, digital spaces. Um, so we're really focusing on encouraging action against online hate, harassment, and abuse. Um, and folks can follow us um, on our social media throughout the month of April. We'll be posting a lot of great content um, that has been well curated, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, but they can access all of that information at our blog. It's ywcautah.org slash SAM. So SAM for Sexual Assault Awareness Month, S-A-A-M. And really we have kind of five overarching themes. So the first is really focusing on kind of developing shared understandings and shared language around online hate, harassment, and abuse. Like this concept is so new to so many of us, um, myself included. You know, most of my work up until last year was, you know, focused on in-person interaction. So what is this? What does this look like? Um, and so that's like defining what, what these forms of harm look like. So like cyber, cyber bullying, cyber stalking, hate speech, online sexual harassment, and threats of physical or sexual violence. Uh, another one of our themes is um, understanding how consent translates to online interactions. And so, you know, consent just very simply is giving permission for something to happen. Um, and digital consent really is a way um, to refer to con sexual consent that happens through screens, be that phone, be that a, a computer screen. Um, and just really emphasizing that consent should be an ongoing conversation that communicates and respects boundaries um, in, in online spaces as well as, as in, in person. And then the third theme is, is really taking action against online hate, harassment, and abuse. And so this is basically, you know, a form of, of digital bystander intervention. So what are the, the ways to intervene that are most strategic? And I would recommend Holla Back um, as a really awesome um, resource for this. They developed what they call the five Ds of intervention and they include distract. So that could be like derailing an exchange by interrupting it with like cat memes or, or something like that. <laughs> um, delegating, which includes kind of rallying others to the, to the harassment that's taking place and getting a group of folks to intervene. Documenting is another that's really important. So you could take screenshots or save like online links. Um, and then approach the person who was targeted afterwards and ask how they would like to use the content. Delay is another, which really focuses on approaching the, the survivor and asking what support would you appreciate in this moment? Um, and then the last is, you know, a more direct call out of the harassment, condemning it and, um, you know, writing a solidarity statement. Um, the next is, is building respectful um, and affirming digital communities. So locate your people, create kind of a, um, a community that is committed to intervening. And then the last is making sure that we really um, make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and taking care of others. Um, and so that really includes, um, you know, validating the experiences of folks that have been targeted and acting solid solidarity and really like referring folks to, to resources in the aftermath. Um, and one resource also that I would really highly recommend, and you can find all of these on our blog, is PEN America's, um, they have an online harassment toolkit that really lays out all of this in such a, a straightforward way. 
Thank you, Jess. Uh, Gabe, to close, I think there's an important part around things just Jess just talked about legislatively as far as policy. I mean, sex education is a big one that we hear about all the time that applies in a lot of ways, but also do we need to update our laws to have uh, the online online forums and online interactions be safe as far as the way the laws enforce them? Yeah, I, I thank you, Sue. I think that that's such a great point. And we do need to keep up with the times and what's happening. And I think that um, that would be a great goal for the 2022 legislative session. And I think we need to push our legislators and our policymakers and move beyond just being able to have this conversation and understand where the big um, breadth of where sexual assault and violence and aggression is happening. Um, because that's very much what I saw with many of my clients. A lot of the proofs we ended up sending to immigration were screenshots of the harassment and the um, verbal and threatened threats for sexual abuse um, on all different platforms that were online. And that's not something that I saw, you know, seven, five to seven years ago. So we definitely need to expand that. And, and I just wanted to add um, another area that we really need to focus on and, and just focusing on the most marginalized groups um, is focusing on the murdered and missing indigenous women and girls and two-spirit work. And there was a bill that passed to um, fund and support the task force. This was Representative Romero's bill, HB 41, because this is a huge issue nationally, but also in Utah. We are ranked in the top 10 states for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in two-spirit. And, you know, interestingly and, and poignantly and sadly with this group, many of the aggressors are not family members, which is seen more in other groups. It tends to be a father, an uncle, a brother, a close family friend, but 41% of sexual assault against American Indians are committed by a stranger. And so I'd like to see our legislature do more to support this work. And I'd like to add, it's as a breaking news type of item, Secretary Holland yesterday announced that she is creating a unit to investigate missing murdered indigenous people. So some, something on the national level to help this along. And I think that's, uh, that's needed news in this area. So I'd like to thank you both for coming on. Um, this is, we need this awareness month and it's difficult topics to talk about. And uh, as evidenced by your experience in the legislature, we need to talk about it more because if we need to have more bills coming up in 2022, there's a lot of education left to do. So thank you both for coming on and thank you for your efforts in this area. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sue. Thanks, Laura, for having us. That brings us to the end of another edition of Everyday People. Our thanks to all of our guests for their time with us tonight and all they do for us in the community. And thank you all listeners for listening. As we bring you the diverse voices of Utah, remember that education brings knowledge, knowledge brings understanding, and greater understanding brings social change. Radioactive is a production of Listeners Community Radio of Utah. Executive producer is Laura Jones. Associate producer is Billy Palmer. 
I'm community co-host Sue Robbins. Until the next Everyday People edition of Radioactive, we see you, we hear you, and we love everyday people just like you.